Stories in Grey by Barry Payne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barney Hallowell. Linda. My elder brother, Lorimer, married ten years ago the daughter of a tenant farmer. I was at that time a boy at school, already interested in the work which has since made me fairly well known, and I took very little interest in Lorimer, or my sister-in-law. From time to time I saw her, of course, when I paid brief visits to their farm in Dorsetshire during the holidays but I did not greatly enjoy these visits. Lorimer seemed to me to become daily more morose and taciturn. His wife had the mind of a heavy peasant, deeply interested in her farm and in little else, and only redeemed from the commonplace by her face. I have heard men speak of her as being very beautiful, and as being hideous. Already an artist, I saw the point of it all at once. Her eyes were not quite human. Sometimes, when she was angry with a servant over some trivial piece of neglect, they looked like the eyes of a devil. She was exceedingly superstitious, and had little education. Our guardian had the good sense to send me to Paris to complete my art education, and one snowy march I was recalled suddenly from Paris to his deathbed. I was at this time twenty-two years of age, and of course the technical guardianship had ceased. Accounts had been rendered, Lorimer had taken his share of my father's small fortune, and I had taken mine. But we both felt a great regard for this uncle, who, during so many years, had been in the place of a father to us. I found Lorimer at the house when I arrived, and learned then, for the first time, that our uncle had strongly disapproved of his marriage. He spoke of it in the partially conscious moments which preceded his end, and he said some queer things. I heard little, because Lorimer asked me to go out. After my guardian's death, Lorimer returned to his farm and I to my studies in Paris. A few months later I had a brief letter from Lorimer announcing the death of his wife. He asked me, and indeed urged me, not to return to England for her funeral, and he added that she would not be buried in consecrated ground. Of the details of her death he said nothing, and I have heard nothing to this day. That was five years ago, and from that time until this last winter I saw nothing of my brother. Our tastes were widely different. We drifted apart. During those five years I made great progress and a considerable sum of money. After my first academy success I never wanted commissions. I had sitters all the year round and all the day while the light lasted. I worked very hard, and possibly a little too hard. Of my engagement with Lady Adela I will say nothing except that it came about while I was painting her portrait, 
and that the engagement was broken off in consequence of the circumstances I am about to relate. It was then one day last winter that a letter was brought to me in my studio in Tite Street from my brother Lorimer. He complained slightly of his health and said that his nerves had gone all wrong. He complained that there were some curious matters on which he wished to take advice, and that he had no one to whom he could speak on those subjects. He urged me to come down and to stay for some time. If there were no room in the farmhouse that suited me for my painting, he would have a studio built for me. This was put in his usual formal and business-like language, but there was a brief postscript. For heaven's sake, come soon! The letter puzzled me. Lorimer, as I knew him, had always been a remarkably independent man, reserved, taking no one into his confidence, resenting interference. His manner towards me had been slightly patronizing, and his attitude towards my painting frankly contemptuous. This letter was of a man disturbed, seeking help, ready to make any concessions. As I have already said, I had been working far too hard, and wanted a rest. During the last year I had made twenty times the sun I had spent. There was no reason why I should not take a holiday. The country around my brother's place is very beautiful. If I did work there at all, I thought it might amuse me to drop portraits for a while and to take up with my first love, landscape. There had never been any affection between Lorimer and myself, but neither had there been any quarrel. There was just the steady and unsentimental family tie. I wrote to him briefly that I would come on the following day, and I hoped he had, or could get, some shooting for me. I told him that I should do little or no work, and he need not bother about a studio for me. I added, "'Your letter leaves me quite in the dark.' and I can't make out what the deuce is the matter with you. Why don't you see the doctor if you're ill? It was a tedious journey down. One gets off the main line onto an insignificant local branch. People on the platform stare at the stranger and know when he comes from London. In order to be certain where he is going, they read with great care and no sense of shame the labels on his luggage. There are frowsy little refreshment rooms, tended by frowsy old women, who could never at any period of their past have been barmaids, and you can never get anything that you want. If you turn in despair from these homes of the fly-blown bun and the doubtful milk to the platforms, you may amuse yourself by noting that the further one gets from civilization the greater is the importance of the railway porter. Some of them quite resent being sworn at. I got out at the least important station on this unimportant line, and as I gave up my ticket, asked the man if Mr. Escort was waiting for me. If, said the man slowly, you mean Mr. Lorimer Escort of the Dyke Farm, he is outside in his dog-cart. "'What's a scent of talking like that, you fool?' I asked. "'Have you got twenty different escorts about here?' "'No,' he replied gravely. "'We have not.' 
and I don't know that we want them. I explained to him that I was not interested in what he wanted or didn't want, and that he could go to the devil. He mumbled some angry reply as I went out of the station. Lorimer leant down from the dog-cart and shook hands with me impassively. He is a big man, with a stern, thin-lipped, clean-shaven face. I noted that his hair had gone very grey, though at his time he was not more than thirty-six years of age. He shouted a direction that my luggage was to come up in the farm cart that stood just behind, bid me rather impatiently to climb up, and brought his whip sharply across the mare's shoulder. There was no necessity to have touched her at all, and as she happened to be a good one, she resented it. Once outside the station yard, we went like the wind. So far as driving was concerned, his nerves seemed to me to be right enough. The road got worse and worse, and the cart jolted and swayed. "'Steady, you idiot!' I shouted to him. "'I don't want my neck broken!' "'All right,' he said. He pulled the mare in, spoke to her, and quieted her. Then he turned to me. "'If this makes you nervous,' he said, "'I'd better turn round and drive you back. A man who is easily frightened wouldn't be of much use to me at Dyke Farm just now. When a man drives like a fool, I suppose it's always a consolation to call the man a funk who tells him so. You can go on to your farm, and I'll promise you one thing. When I am frightened, I will tell you.' He became more civil at once. He said that was better. As for the driving, he had merely amused himself by trying to take a rise out of a Londoner. His house was six miles from the station, and for the rest of the way we chatted amicably enough. He told me that he was his own bailiff and his own housekeeper, managed the farm like a man and the house like a woman. He said that hard work suited him. "'You must find it pretty lonely,' I said. "'I do,' he answered. "'Lately I've been wishing that I could find it still lonelier.' "'Look here,' I said. "'Do you mind telling me plainly what on earth is the matter?' "'You shall see for yourself,' he said. "'The farmhouse had begun by being a couple of cottages, "'and two or three considerable additions had been made to it at different times.' Consequently, the internal architecture was somewhat puzzling. The hall and two of the living rooms were fairly large, but the rooms upstairs were small and detestably arranged. Often one room opened into another, and sometimes into two or three others. The floor was of different heights, and one was always going up or down a step or two. Three staircases in different parts of the house led from the ground floor to the upper storey, the old moss-grown tiles of the roof were pleasing, and the whole place was rather a picturesque jumble. But we only stopped in the house for the time of a whisky and soda. Lorimer took me around the garden almost immediately. It was a walled garden, and good only as an old garden can be. Lorimer was fond of it. His spirit seemed to improve, and at that moment I could find nothing abnormal in him. The farm cart, with my luggage, lumbered slowly up, and presently a gong inside the house rang loudly. "'Ah!' said Lorimer, pulling out his watch. 
Time to dress. I'll show you your room, if you like. My room consisted really of two rooms, opening into one another. They seemed comfortable enough, and there were beautiful views from the windows of both of them. Lorimer left me, and I began in a leisurely way to dress for dinner. As I was dressing, I heard a queer little laugh, coming apparently from one of the upper rooms in the passage. I took little notice of it at first. I supposed it was due to one of the neat and rosy-cheeked maids who were busy about the house. Then I heard it again, and this time it puzzled me. I knew that laugh, knew it perfectly well, but could not place it. Then suddenly it came to me. It was exactly like the laugh of my sister-in-law, who had died in this house. It struck me as a queer coincidence. Naturally enough, I blundered on, coming downstairs, and first opened the door of the dining-room. I noticed that the table was laid for three people, and supposed that Lorimer had asked some neighbour to meet me, possibly a man over whose land I was to shoot. One of the maids directed me to the drawing-room, and I went in. At one end of the room a log-fire flickered and hissed, and the smell of the wood was pleasant. The room was lit by two large ground-glass lamps, relics of my dead sister-in-law's execrable taste. I had at once the feeling that I was not alone in the room, and almost instantly a girl who had been kneeling on the rug in front of the fire got up and came towards me with hands outstretched. Her age seemed to be about sixteen or seventeen. She had red hair perhaps the most perfect red that I have ever seen. Her face was beautiful, her eyes were large and grey, but there was something queer about those eyes. I noticed it immediately. She was dressed in the simplest manner, in white. As she came towards me, she gave that little laugh which I had heard upstairs, and then I knew what was strange in her eyes. They also at moments did not look quite human. "'You look surprised,' she said. "'Did not Mr. Escort tell you that I should be here? "'I am Linda, you know.' "'Linda was the name of my dead sister-in-law. "'The name, the laugh, the eyes, "'all suggested that this was the daughter of Linda Escort. "'But this was a girl of sixteen or seventeen, "'and my brother's marriage had taken place only nine years before. "'Besides, she spoke of him as Mr. Escort. I was making some amiable and some more or less confused reply when Lorimer entered. Ah, he said, I see you have already made Miss Marston's acquaintance. I had hoped to be in time to introduce you. We began to chat about my journey down, the beauty of the country, all sorts of commonplace things. I was struck greatly by her air at once mysterious and contemptuous. It irritated, and yet it fascinated me. At dinner, she said laughingly, that it would really be rather confusing now. There would be two Mr. Escorts, Mr. Lorimer Escort and Mr. Hubert Escort. She would have to think of some way of making a distinction. I think, she said, turning to my brother, I shall go on calling you Mr. Escort, and I shall call you Brother Hubert. 
I said that I should be greatly flattered, and her grey eyes showed me that I had no need to be. From this time onward she called me Hubert, as though she had known me and despised me all my life. I noticed that two or three times at dinner she seemed to fall into fits of abstraction, in which she was hardly conscious that one had spoken to her, and I noticed, moreover, that these fits of abstraction irritated my brother immensely. She rose at the end of dinner, and said she would see if the billiard-room was lit up. We could come and smoke in there as soon as we liked. I gave a sigh of relief as I closed the door behind her. "'At last,' I said. "'Now then, Lorimer, perhaps you will tell me who this Miss Marston is.' "'Tell me who you think she is. No, don't.' "'She is my dead wife's younger sister.' younger by many years. Her father took the name of Marston shortly before his death. I am her guardian. My wife's dying words were occupied entirely with this sister, about whom she told me much that would seem to you strange beyond belief. And at the same time she gave me injunctions, wrested promises from me which under certain conditions I shall have to carry out. The conditions may arise. I think they will. I don't mind saying that I'm afraid they will. Why does she bear her sister's name? Why does she address you as Mr. Escort? And why do you address her as Miss Marston, when she introduces herself to me simply as Linda? Her mother had three daughters. The eldest was called Linda. When she died, the second, who was my wife, took that name. When my wife died, the name descended to the third of them. There has always been a Linda in the family. The rest is simply Miss Marston's own whim. She has several. Who chaperones her here? I asked. He smiled. That question is typical of you. She is little more than a child, and she is an almost excessively respectable governess living here to look after her. Only I can't be bothered with the governess at dinner quite every night. Does that satisfy you? No. Well, perhaps yes. I suppose so. It may make your rigid mind a little easier if I tell you, and it is the truth, that if I had my own way I would turn Miss Marston out of this house to-morrow, and that I would never set eyes on her again, that I have a horror of her, and she has a contempt of me. And of most other people, I fancy. Well, anyhow, what's the trouble? I haven't the time to tell you a long story now. She will be waiting for us. Besides, you would merely laugh at me, you have not yet seen for yourself. What would you say if I told you of a compact made years and years ago with some power of evil, and that this girl was concerned in the fulfilment of it? What should I say? Very little. I should get a couple of doctors to sign you off at once. Naturally, you would think me mad. Well, wait here for a few weeks and see what you make of things. In the meantime, come along to the billiard room. 
The billiard-room was an addition that Lorimer himself had made to the house. We found Linda crouched on the rug in front of the blazing fire. I soon found out that this was a favourite attitude with her. Her coffee-cup was balanced on her knees. Her eyes stared into the flames. She did not seem to notice our entrance. "'Miss Marston,' said my brother. There was a shade of annoyance in his voice. She looked up at him with a disdainful smile. "'Do you care to give Hubert a game?' he asked. "'Not yet. I want to watch a game first. You two play, and I'll mark.' "'What am I to give you, Lorimer?' I asked. Thirty? He was not even a moderate player. I had always been able to give him at least that. "'You had better play even,' said Linda. "'And I think you will be beaten, Hubert.' I looked at Lorimer in astonishment. "'Very well, Miss Marston,' he said, as he took down his cue. I could only suppose that during the last few years his play had improved considerably, and even then I did not see why Linda had interfered. How on earth could she know what my game was like?' "'This is your evening,' I said to Lorimer, after his first outrageous fluke. "'It would seem so,' he answered, and fluked again. And this went on. His game had not improved. He did the wrong things and did them badly, and they turned out all right. Now and again I heard Linda's brief laugh, and looked up at her. Her eyes seemed to have power to coax a lagging ball into a pocket— one had a curious feeling that she was controlling the game. I did my best with all the luck dead against me. It was a close finish, but I was beaten, as Linda said I should be. Linda would not play. She said she was tired, and suddenly she looked tired. The light went out of her eyes. She lit a cigarette and went back to her place on the rug before the fire. Lorimer talked about his farm with me. The quiet of the place seemed almost ghastly to a man who was used to London. Presently Linda got up to go to bed. "'Good night, Mr. Escort,' she said, as she shook hands with my brother. Then she turned to me. "'Good night, Hubert. You shouldn't quarrel with ticket collectors about nothing. It's silly, isn't it?' She kissed me on the cheek and ran off laughing. She left me astounded by her words and insulted by her kiss. Lorimer turned out the lights over the billiard table, and we sat down again by the fire. "'What did you think of that game?' he asked. "'It was remarkable.' "'Nothing more. I never saw a game like it before. But there was nothing impossible about it.' "'Very well. And did you have a row with that ticket collector?' Not a row, exactly. He annoyed me, and I may have called him a fool. I suspect you overheard and told her about it. I could not have overheard. I was outside the station buildings, and you were on the further platform. Yes, that's true. It's a queer coincidence. I tried that, too, at first, the belief that things were remarkable, but not impossible, and that— Queer coincidences happen. 
Personally, I can't keep it up any more. Look here, I said. We may as well go to the point at once. Why do you want me here? Why did you send for me? Suppose that I said I wanted you to marry Miss Marston. I thought that at the time of my engagement with Adela I wrote and gave you the news. You did. The artistic temperament does sometimes do a brilliant business thing for itself. Lady Adela marries... We won't discuss her. Then suppose we discuss you. You are half in love with Linda already. Very well, I said. Let us carry the supposition a little further. Suppose that I or anybody else was entirely in love with her. What on earth would be the use? The one thing that one could feel absolutely certain about in her is that she has an amused contempt for the rest of her species, male and female. It's not affected, it's perfectly genuine. Even if I wished to marry her, she would not look at me. Really? said Lorimer, with a sneer. She seemed fond enough of you when she gave you good night. That, I said meditatively, was the cleverest kiss that ever was kissed. It finished what the interchange of Christian names began. It settled the situation exactly, that I was the fool of a brother, and she the good-natured, though contemptuous sister. You needn't look at it like that. It is important, exceedingly important, that she should be married. Marry her yourself. It won't be legal in this country, but it will be in others, and I don't know that it matters. No, I don't know that it matters. On the day I wrote to you, I did ask her to be my wife. She replied that it was disagreeable to have to speak of such things, and that they need not be allowed to come to the surface again. But that... As a matter of fact, our fond, we hated each other. It was true. I do hate her. What I do for her is for my dead wife's sake, for the promises I made, and perhaps a little for common humanity. There are others who would marry her. The man whose pheasants you will be shooting next week would give his soul for her cheerfully. And it's no use. Very likely it will be of no use in your case. What was the story that you had not time to tell me after dinner? The door opened, and a servant brought in the decanters and soda water, and arranged them on the table by Lorimer's side. He did not speak until the servant had gone out of the room, and then he seemed to be talking almost more to himself than to me. At night... When one wakes up in the small hours, after a bad dream, or hearing some sudden noise in the house, one believes things of which one is a little ashamed next morning. He paused, and then leant forward, addressing me directly. Look here, I'll say it in a few words. You won't believe it, and that doesn't matter a tinker's curse to me. You'll believe it a little later if you stop here. Generations ago, in the time of witches, a woman who was to have been burned as a witch 
escaped miraculously from the hands of the officers. It was said that she had a compact with the devil, and that some future time he should take a living maiden of her line. Death and marriage are the two ways of safety for any woman of that family. The compact has not yet been carried out, and Linda is the last of the line. She bears the signs of which my wife told me. One by one I watch them coming out in her. Her power over inanimate objects, her mysterious knowledge of things which have happened elsewhere, the terror of which all animals have of her. A year or two ago she was always about the farm on the best of terms with every dog and horse in the place. Now they will not let her come near them. Well, it is my business to save Linda. I have given my promise. I wish her to be married. If that is not possible, and the moment arrives, I must kill her. Why talk like a fool? I said. Come and live in London for a week. It strikes me that both Linda and yourself might perhaps be benefited by being put into the hands of a specialist. In any case, don't tell these fairy stories to a sane man like myself. Very well, he said, getting up. I must be going to bed. I am out on the farm before six every morning, and I shall probably have breakfasted before you are up. Miss Marston and Mrs. Tennyson, that's her old governess, breakfast at nine. You can join them if you like, or breakfast by yourself later. Long after my brother had gone to bed, I sat in the billiard-room, thinking the thing over, angry with myself, and indeed ashamed that I could not disbelieve quite as certainly as I wished. At breakfast next morning, I asked Linda to sit to me for her portrait, and she consented. We found a room with a good light. Mrs. Dennison remained with us during the sitting. This went on for days. The portrait was a failure. I have the best of the several attempts that I made still. The painting's all right, but the likeness is not there. There is something missing in the eyes. I saw a great deal of Linda, and I came at last to this conclusion, that I had no explanation whatever of the powers which she undoubtedly possessed. I also learned that she herself was well acquainted with the story of her house. She alluded to the fact that neither of her sisters was buried in consecrated ground. No woman of her family would ever be "'And you?' I asked. "'I am not sure that I shall be buried at all. "'To me strange things will happen.' "'I had letters occasionally from Lady Adela. "'I was glad to see that she was getting tired of the whole thing. "'My conduct had not been so calculating and ignoble as Lorimer had supposed. "'She was a very beautiful woman.' It was easy enough to suppose that one was in love with her, until one happened to fall in love. I determined to go to London to see Lady Adela, and to give her the chance, 
which I was sure she wanted, to throw me over. I promised Lorimer that I would only be away for one night. Lady Adela missed her appointment with me at her mother's house, and left a note of excuse. Something serious had happened, I believe, with regard to a dress that she was to wear that night. But really, I do not remember what her excuse was. I went back to my rooms in Tite Street, and there I found a telegram from Mrs. Dennison. It told me in plain language, and with due regard to the fact that each word cost a halfpenny, that my brother, in a fit of madness, had murdered Linda Marston and taken his own life. I got back to my brother's farm late that night. The evidence at the inquest was simple enough. Linda had three rooms, opening into one another, the one furthest from the passage being her bedroom. At the time of the murder, Mrs. Dennison was in the second room, reading, and Linda was playing the piano in the room which opened into the passage. Mrs. Dennison heard the music stop suddenly. Linda was whimsical in her playing, as in everything else. There was a pause, during which the governess was absorbed in her book. Then she heard in the next room Lorimer say distinctly, "'It is all right, Linda. I have come to save you.' This was followed by three shots in succession. Mrs. Dennison rushed in and found the two lying dead. She was greatly affected at the inquest and as few questions as possible were put to her. Some time afterwards, Mrs. Dennison told me a thing which she did not mention at the inquest. Shortly after the music had stopped, and before Lorimer entered the room, she had heard another voice, as though someone were speaking with Linda. This third voice, and Linda's own, were in low tones, and no words could be heard. I thought this over, and I remembered that Lorimer fired three times, and that the third bullet was found in another part of the room. Lady Adela was certainly quite right to give me up, which she did in a most tactful and sympathetic letter. End of chapter Recording by Barney Hallowell, Cambridge, October 2017